Good evening. I am Milena Kalinowska, Director of Public Programs and Education, and it is my pleasure indeed to welcome you tonight to meet the artist with Kota Ezava, whose 35mm slide projection, History of Photography Remix, is currently on view in our exhibition based on his own collection, Out of the Ordinary, curated by Melissa Ho. Now a few acknowledgments of those people who make this evening possible, and indeed beyond. I'd like to thank especially Kerry Brower, Chief Curator and Deputy Director of the Hirschhorn for his continued support of public programs. I also would like to acknowledge Melissa Ha, Curator of the Exhibition Out of the Ordinary, Caroline Elliott, Manager of Adult Programs, and Sarah Gordon, Coordinator of Time-Based Media. Now let me turn to Kota Ezava. He was born in Cologne, Germany and has studied at Kunstakademie Düsseldorf. He earned his BFA at the San Francisco Art Institute and received MFA from Stanford University. Kota uses computer animation to reconsider images from art history, cinema, television, and popular culture. Many of these images are included in the work we presently have on view in the work of History of Photography Remix. His work include representation of cultural moments such as the O.G. Simpson trial verdict reading, the assassination on, of Joan F. Kennedy, and the Odessa staircase sequence of Sergei Eisenstein film Battleship Patiemkin, to name just a few. Kota meticulously recreates frame-by-frame frame animated sequences using digital drawing and animation software, and then represents them using slide projection, light boxes, collages, and prints. Kota's work has been shown in solar exhibitions at Haywood Gallery Project Space in London, Art Space San Antonio, and Wandsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art. He participated in many group exhibitions at the Museum of Modern Art, Whitney Museum of American Art in New York, Warhol Museum, Museum de Art Moderne de la Ville in Paris, among others. His work, The Simpson Verdict of 2002, was included in the Hirschhorn major two-part exhibition, The Cinema Effect, Illusion, Reality, and the Moving Image, which was first shown here in 2008. Now please help me to welcome Kota Ezava, who will tell us more about his work and process of working. Um, yeah, thanks for inviting me to come here to this uh, uh, incredible building. Uh, for tonight, uh, it'd be really nice for me if we could have some kind of conversation, And uh, but I'll get it started. Uh, I uh, thought I'll do it in kind of two parts. The first part, I want to present some animations that are part of my, you know, personal DVD collection. And they're kind of a history of animation. They range from the early 20th century to the present time. And then in the second part of the talk, I want to show some of the works that I made. 
And um, if there's any pressing question that you have at any time, you can jump right in or you can save your um, comments and questions for uh, after the films. But I'll get started because I brought quite a few of these clips. And I'm going to get started by showing a clip from an American animation film from 1918. Some of you might know it. It's by an American cartoonist. His name is Windsor McKay and he uh, made uh, several cartoon animations before he made this one. This one is called The Sinking of Lusitania. I don't know if I pronounced it correctly, but um, I'm really interested in this film. It's, uh, the total film is 12 minutes long, and I'm just going to show a few excerpts from it. It's kind of a faithful recreation of the sinking of an American passenger ship that was uh, hit by a torpedo missile uh, from a German submarine during World War I. And uh, Windsor McKay uh, tried to recreate this event as good as he could with his animation skills. Oh, hold on just a moment. Doing this right? Yeah, okay. Yeah, the whole piece is much longer, and it's available on DVDs uh, for those who uh, might want to see the whole thing. Uh, Windsor McKay was really ahead of his time um, in terms of technique. This was a cell animation, which Walt Disney used later on, but only you know ten years later after Windsor McKay kind of pioneered it in this piece. And to us, it might look quite crude, but uh, it took years to make really in it's all done by hand uh, with ink. I'm, I'm really interested in this piece because I find the whole history of animation is kind of hijacked by the Walt Disney Corporation and everybody who thinks of animation just thinks of it as fantasy and castles and princesses and so forth but really early on in the history of animation people used it already for completely different purposes like this to recreate a real event that was not recorded on camera. And then uh, at the same time as these early animation films in America, there was also um, movement of animation films in Europe. And in Germany, it was called Absolute Film and was like a movement of abstract animation filmmakers. And the most prominent one is Oskar Fischinger, uh, whose work is also presented in museum shows uh, currently. I've, I've, I don't know where I came across it. Um, and these are very, they're almost um, the moving image form of constructivism or distill these abstract movements. And they just used, uh, the makers uh, used moving images to create similar effects. And, but a lot of them had also, of course, day jobs to support their art practices because you couldn't really make a lot of money making abstract films. And so what I'm going to show is a cigarette commercial that Oscar Fischinger made in the, uh, in the 1930s. And this it was a cigarette commercial he made for the Italian cigarette maker Murati. And the cigarette commercial became so popular that uh, Paramount Pictures hired him to come to Hollywood and that was actually his big uh, luck because, of course, the Nazi regime um, put a stop 
to abstract filmmaking. And while his brother was stuck in Germany and continued to make abstract films in secret, he was able to you know, help uh, Walt Disney develop Fantasia and things like that. So here's the secret commercial by Oscar Fischinger. So this was made about in the uh, mid-1930s. And uh, Oscar Fischinger has a really rich oeuvre. Um, he was hired by Paramount Pictures, but I don't think he's listed on the credits of Fantasia, which I'm sure he helped to inspire, uh, because he got into a fight with Paramount and got dismissed, and he made his kind of personal poetic practice after that. And this kind of, it, for some reason, it doesn't surprise me, because he's German, and Germans have kind of a fighter mentality, and no wonder he got into a fight with Paramount. Um, oh, the next piece I'm going to show uh, has also a relationship to what's on view at the Hirschhorn right now. I'm going to show an excerpt from a longer animation piece from the, uh, uh, it was made in the early 60s by a Bay Area uh, collage artist and filmmaker named uh, Larry Jordan. And he was also an assistant of Joseph Cornell, whose assemblages and uh, boxes are on view at the Hirschhorn. And you can see the relationship, I think, to from Joseph Cornell's practice to his animation films once I show you this clip. Um, what I really like about this animation film, even though it's very carefully done and a very, there's a lot of precision in it, it's in a way an um, improvised piece of animation. He never worked with a storyboard. He just uh, began working on his animation films and then they developed as he went and he never really knew what the outcome would be once when he was starting these animation films. So this film is from 1960. And it's called Duo Concertantes, and it's a paper anim paper cutout animation film. <clears throat> I'm going to switch to something kind of completely different, and the difference is also caused by a shift of medium. All the works that we've seen so far are uh, real uh, film animations. And then in the 60s, of course, uh, was the emergence of electronic media. And uh, the, one of the major pioneers of electronic media was, of course, Namjoon Pike, who has a big show up at another museum here in Washington, D.C. And um, Namjoon Pike was just kind of a maverick, uh, having doing everything from uh, electronic music and sculpture and very philosophical pieces to also just kind of uh, taped uh, pieces. The one that I'm going to sh excerpt here, um, show a short excerpt of, is called uh, Beatles Electronic, and it's done uh, as a collaboration with another artist. His name is Judd Yalkut, and I heard today from the people at the American Art Museum that he just recently gave a talk in Washington, D.C. Um, so what we're seeing is um, a 
transfer, a digital transfer of a 16 millimeter film that Judd Yalkut made of an um, experiment by Namjoon Pike with a television that played a Beatles performance, I think, of A Hard Day's Night. So what we saw was, of course, also a, like a layering of artifacts. This pixelation comes from the uh, MPEG file that I used uh, just now. And Namjoon Pike is probably not uh, by many considered to be an animator, but this um, use of magnets and this interfering with TV technology creates kind of a similar effect as these early abstract films, the absolute film movement of the early 20th century. There's some uh, uh, beautiful pieces on monitors at the American Art Museum where he just um, interfered with the tubes that create some very, it almost looks like digital animation, but it was done much earlier. Yeah, so now we're from film to electronic media, and uh, I also want to show a little bit of digital animation. And I'm of the generation that, you know, if I have to pick a radio station on the radio, I'm the, I think every generation picks his, its music, and my generation is the 80s. And so I grew up with the, I feel I grew up with the golden age of MTV. MTV I don't even know what MTV shows nowadays, but in the 80s, I felt they were really kind of exciting television because the whole genre of music videos was completely new and the makers of music videos had a lot of new territory to cover and could make whatever they wanted. Uh, then later on, the music videos became very centered on the stars and how to make them look sexy and hot. But in the early days of MTV, there were there were some I felt incredible music videos, and so I'm going to show a music video from uh, the uh, from Prince uh, from his album a Sign of the Times, which uh, I don't know. I honestly don't know who made this uh, film, and I also don't know if that person was aware of Absolute Film of the early 20th century. But I think it, you know all these. Uh, in a way, I think Absolute Film and Namjoon Pike Global Groove made MTV possible in a way because they first started experimenting with this musical video making. So here's a clip from Prince, uh, Sign of the Times. Yeah, any of you are, who are familiar with abstract films by Robert Breer or um, Hans Richter, also these kind of very simple geometric shapes that flash on and off have been kind of a vocabulary of abstract filmmakers much earlier. And it's nice that it kind of trickled down in such a popular art form that was seen by millions. Um, I'm going to switch to a few of my own works now. And the first one I'm going to show is the one that was uh, part of a group exhibition here at the Hirshhorn Museum uh, called The Cinema Effect. And um, 
I'm not trained as an animator. I didn't go to any kind of animation school and all this kind of knowledge of historic animation is something that just I just came upon being interested in it. It was really a, a conscious decision of mine to start making animation films. I was I was I had already made videos for a number of years and I was looking for some kind of uh, visual moving image form that kind of puts a stress on ideas rather than just on reality. And I find animation is capable of that because everything that you see in an animated film was the idea of the maker. Nothing just kind of ends up there. That's what at least was my motivation. And um, so for those of you who've worked at the museum for a while, it will be uh, uh, revisiting a piece that was here. And for those of you who missed the show, you can see it now. Um, okay, so the... Uh, what triggered this piece was really an uh, interest in making this experiment. What happens if I take a moving image and then just translate it like a, you know, like a language translator would from English to Chinese, from, move, from recorded image to animation. And I wanted it to be very much like a recording, not a um, kind of manicured image, but a very raw image. And the Simpson verdict was such an image. It was just made by a courtroom you know, videographer, and he didn't try to win Oscar for best cinematography. He just tried to kind of capture what was there. And then I wanted to see what kind of aesthetic outcome would uh, this would render. And uh, this piece has been, I made this piece in 2002, so it's been around for a while, and I heard a number of reactions to it. And one that I found very interesting is a lot of people uh, comment on the sound of the piece. And the sound is also kind of an accident. I wanted to recreate the sound, but then I made a kind of in-progress screening of it, and because the sound wasn't finished, I just used the original sound, and I realized that there was a real kind of power using this raw sound with this very constructed image. And the sound is, of course, the same as the sound of the original clip that many people have seen. But I think in the original clip, people don't notice it so much because the image is very confusing. There's a lot of detail that you get drawn into with this camera-recorded image, while with my image, it's a lot kind of simpler and easier to digest in a way, and that gives maybe leaves room in your brain and receptors to focus into the sound and you notice all these nuances in the sound that get lost in the camera version. Found that uh, interesting reaction. Um, the next piece that I'm going to show, uh, I just have two or three more little clips and then we can start talking about it if you have anything to say. Uh, is uh, uh, my first piece that I presented in a gallery show in New York, and it's called Lenin's on Tuck Boys. And it was a three-screen video installation, which is hard, hard to do in this format. So I'm going to show three clips of the individual channels and then kind of a simulation of what they all looked like together. This was made in 2004 and shown in 2005. 
So this is what it looked like uh, in the gallery. There were these three screens next to each other. And when you entered the gallery space, it was kind of a cacophony of voices. Uh, but then there were also these uh, speakers that were suspended from the ceiling. Uh, they looked kind of like um, uh, these, uh, I don't know, uh, plexiglass uh, shower, big shower heads, and they uh, broadcast the sound to very distinct spots in the uh, gallery. So if you wanted to listen to John Lennon just by himself, you could do that in one spot, and you could focus in on individual speakers. And it's a really odd piece. It started out with the animation of Joseph Boyce, but then I felt him by himself didn't really have enough substance for this piece. And then I quickly added John Lennon and Susan Sontag. And I didn't think so much about the relationships that these three two had to each other. But then um, I uh, realized in making the piece and showing the piece that they have actually a lot of relationships to each other. I, I said I showed this in a gallery show in New York and they were all, all these three clips have kind of a relationship to New York. This was Joseph Boyce. Um, uh, first lecture in a American university. It was at the New School in New York in 1976 or so. And then John Lennon and Yoko Ono were, of course, some of the famous residents of New York. And then Susan Sontag was um, the, for a long time the critical voice of New York. So the piece had real kind of uh, reverberance with the city of New York, I found. And then I made this piece in 2004, which was just the beginning of the Iraq war. And everybody was really up in arms about it, I find. And then these three artists, and especially in these instances, were real strong activists besides being artists. So you hear John Lennon making a protest against Vietnam War. Joseph Beuys, who's a founder or big figure in the peace movement in Germany, speaking about social sculpture. And then uh, Susan Sontag, who was a big activist in the Bosnian War, also performing theater in Sarajevo, talking about photography as a form of protest. And then just um, uh, the original impetus to use this lecture footage for an animation was, again, that I've, what I find a videotape lecture is about the most anesthetic image you can imagine. Maybe this will be videotaped, and, but I don't think anybody would want to look at it for visual reasons. You know, there's nothing happening. But then when you transform it into an animation, it all of a sudden gains a visual quality also. And I like that when you had these three screens next to each other, there was this uh, color blend happening. John Lennon was full color and then Susan Sontag stood in front of a blackboard so it was kind of a half black and white, half uh, color image and then Joseph Boyce all black and white and these kind of really formal issues you would never I think look at if you were just looking at the raw footage. So the next clip is where you can finally use these cardboard glasses. And this is uh, from a um, piece uh, that was also shown in, in DC before at this uh, American Art Museum. It's called Liam 3D.
<clears throat> so this um, sh is also a clip from a longer animation. It's about twice as long, and uh, it's based on the uh, French surrealist film La Nuit Dernière à Marinebad, was made in the early 60s. This idea to make it 3D was kind of a last minute decision, but I felt it really did something to the piece. Um, I think all of that 3D has already completely changed. We're living in a renaissance of 3D. It was already big in the 50s, but then it disappeared and then it reemerged. And I made this piece right when this kind of second renaissance of 3D was happening. I made this in 2008, I think. And um, I wanted to subject a piece of footage to 3D that you wouldn't normally associate with the blockbuster mass entertainment um, a genre. Although, you know, now 3D is also used by Wim Wenders and Werner Herzog, and I'm sure soon enough it will be uh, also just like the effect will disappear. But I do like what it does with this uh, film. I was attracted to these scenes in the film because they're very still. The actors are completely motionless. And it's not only in the animation like that. It's, there's also a lot of scenes in the film where actors are completely frozen. And it uh, really helps the put a stress on the gorgeous costumes of the actors. The costumes for this film were made by Coco Chanel, and you can really admire her fashion when these actors strike these poses. And then also the cinematography of the film is really uh, incredible, and it does these sweeping pans through this Baroque fern, uh, architecture, and I find that the 3D effect actually even heightens it, so makes it, turns it kind of into a architecture animation with statuesque actors. Yeah, I, I, like I said, I have a very spontaneous, intuitive way of working. The, to make these works takes a long time. It always takes several months, but the idea just always kind of hits me, and then I'll, I'll go ahead and do it. It's not so strategic how I choose my subject matter. And I don't know why I was so attracted to this film. I had only seen it once before starting to work on it. And, but I think it might have to do uh, with a residency that I did in Germany at this um, Baroque castle in southern Germany. The residency is called Akademie Schloss Solitude. And uh, then after the, after the residency, I started making this piece, which is a film shot entirely in a Baroque piece of architecture uh, in, set in the Czech Republic. And I think it was just digesting the experience of doing an artist residency in a Baroque um, building. I just have one more piece, and this is a fairly fresh piece. It hasn't been shown much in public, and uh, I'm just gonna put it on. It's a watercolor animation, it's called Take Off. 
So um, this is, like I said, it's a, a pretty brand new piece. And uh, I think I was attracted to the subject matter because so much art that you see, and I see a lot of it as a art professor at an art school and traveling and seeing shows here and there, deals with the kind of detriment of the human condition and uh, which is important that artists put their fingers to it, but it also gets a little bit exhausting if you're in the position of an artist, always to put your finger on the wounds of our time. So I wanted to find like an image that's optimistic. I don't even know if it's possible to make optimistic art or something like that, but to me this, there's kind of an optimism in this, uh, in this image. And I'm not uh, kind of talking down on conservative politicians or something like that. I find actually that uh, I, uh, I met, I was just invited to a panel in Tokyo that was organized by the uh, Christian Democratic Union in, in Germany and I find them, found it so big-hearted of them to invite a kind of left-wing artist like me to the, one of their panel discussions. I sometimes wish liberal people would be as liberal as some conservative people or something like that. Yeah, but it's nice to be able to show this piece in this auditorium and also today for me to walk around actually to these sites that I painted in watercolor. I was, for example, really worried that I got the helicopter takeoff place completely wrong because I made it based on C-SPAN footage, so you can't really recognize it clearly and you just make these educated guesses and I was like, oh wow, yeah, it's true, these uh, rock panels in front of the capital, they are kind of purplish, so I didn't get it completely wrong. Yeah, um, yes? Kona, in that last piece, could you talk about that shift that happens from using the television <coughs> framing device within the image to the moment of, oh, the moment of takeoff, and all of a sudden it pulls back and it's more from the point of view as if you're actually standing there. Uh -huh. um, you talk about that choice. Okay, yeah. Um, I always hope that these animations look really just like Bambi cartoons and that they're really easy on the eye and so forth, but to make them is really always a really difficult birth and one of it is the labor component. It's really like hours and hours of drawing, but the other one is also that you kind of need to have some kind of peace or comfort with your own work. And I had the animation of the bush takeoff almost finished and I felt really dis uncomfortable with it. There was something really making me uneasy. And I remember I walked around my block at night and just like, what can I do, what can I do to save this film? And then I thought of the TV frame to place the animation inside a TV and to make it kind of clear that it's a media image, that it's not, I'm not an eyewitness of this event. You know, I saw it like everyone else, I saw it on TV. And uh, this TV frame kind of helped me uh, kind of come to peace with this image, this distance that I created to the image. 
And so I was in peace for like a week or 10 days, but then I got uh, again uh, uncomfortable with the film because of those NPR reporters. The, you know, uh, Jim Lehrer and his sidekicks. And I guess I've heard them speak one too many times and they kind of, I had to find a way to drown them out. And then uh, to not make them so prominent because sound becomes very prominent in my films. And then I had the crazy idea that during the part where they are talking about Bush, actually, I'm just going to cut back to the raw footage. It, it, yeah, it seems kind of a paradoxical decision. I put the TV frame to run away from the closeness of the event and then I went back to the closeness of the event to run away from the voices of the TV reporters. Um, and I don't know if this piece actually works. If anyone can tell me, it's probably you because you're a resident of this town or you spend time here. But I feel almost it's too close. I had a chat with you today about uh, dead subjects, you know, that Warhol was drawn to make portraits of dead people. And maybe this event is not dead enough to even look at it. Maybe it needs to sit in the shelf for three more years. But made it anyway. So one of the, the things that you mentioned earlier was um, that nothing happens by accident in, a, in an illustration. Um, uh, and I was thinking about, you know, O.J. Simpson's smile when, when the verdict was announced and, and just how deliberate that suddenly becomes. Uh, but it's in the context of a very flat, um, color scheme and, and, and uh, two-dimensional space. But with the watercolor, there seems to be a lot more volume and uh, movement, you know, with the, with the different frames and the hair moving and that sort of thing. I was wondering if that was a deliberate choice to move to watercolor or, or mm. I mean, does it soften the, I guess, the, the hard, deliberate choice of movement of, of the previous images or, or what other thinking was behind watercolor? Uh, I mean, it's, uh, there's also a number of reasons for it. Uh, I think artist is, to, um, is a tough job like any other job, but one of, uh, you know, sometimes there's a lot of demand for your work and then it's easy, then you just need to respond to demand. But uh, ultimately you have to also find pleasure in what you're doing. And one thing that watercolor does is just like it pulls you away from your computer and you're just sitting in a room on a table with some water and pushing water around on a piece of paper. Um, but then it's also, I started out doing this type of work 10 years ago and back then people still talked about media art and I find the word media art has become completely obsolete by now because everything is media. Media is the air that we breathe and I think there's no kind of point for an artist to point at media and say, you know, we own media or we use media to make work. So might as well use watercolor or chalk or anything. Uh, not, nothing, there's a, the medianess of media has gone away. So I feel very free to use anything else. There's no political statement in using computers anymore. There was, you know, as early as 2000, people thought it was a revolution that Artists used computers, but that has gone away. 
Also, uh, one more thing, I think also with all my work, of course the goal is that I get some kind of effect with the person watching it. And uh, watercolor has kind of um, atmospheric dimension. It, I, I find watercolor somehow um, melancholic. And I, I wanted to kind of create that surface on top of that image. Hi. So my question is, do you watch commercial films? And if so, what's like your favorite genre? Do you like horror films? Or? Um, yeah, nowadays I must say I watch uh, mostly on airplanes. <laughs> um, and then, some, uh, you know, in, in, on airplanes, sometimes you have these channels where you can switch and choose from a library of films. And sometimes you just have this big monitor in the center of the aisle. And I actually prefer the big monitor in the center of the aisle uh, because you're just subject, subjected to a film you can't choose. And you have to watch a film that you would normally never watch. And then, for example, uh, today on the big screen, or yesterday, they had Promised Land, a film by Gus Vincent, and I had the pleasure to have dinner with him once. He's a fantastic filmmaker, fantastic artist, but that film just didn't work on the, at least on the big screen TV on the airplane. Uh, it was too much about the nuances of the dialogue that you couldn't hear because of all the rattling and engine noises. So this film didn't work and then once I had to see this robot transformer film called uh, Real, it was called Real Steel, and just from the title, I would have never chosen to see this film because I'm not such a steely guy, I guess. And then I much was, to my surprise, was really touched by this film. It has it kind of harkens back to constructivism, and so I found it incredible that you can find can develop empathy to a machine. And this is what kind of, uh, and it sounds kind of terrible, you know, why should you feel rude? It was kind of the bad old robot fighting against the high-tech robot, and of course the bad old robot won. But uh, that you can find empathy to a machine is to me is almost like finding empathy to uh, humankind, because machines are the product of human thinking and that's why the you know constructivists loved machines because they're product of thinking. Uh, this is just a comment, but uh, I thought your last film worked because it uh, it abstracted the features of those very famous individuals and people have these passionate feelings, and it to me spoke more to just the peaceful transition of power from two very different ideologies that we have. Um, so that was kind of the optimism that I got. But. So uh, it was said in the beginning that you're a teacher as well. So I'm wondering how you influence your students or what kind of um, guidance you give them given that your own creative process is so instinctual. So how, mm. how do you teach? Uh, it's a, I got into teaching way too early. I had just finished my graduate degree and then just one year later um, the art school in San Francisco offered me a visiting artist job and it turned into some kind of a position. 
and I really didn't have anything to teach. But then I had also the luck when I uh, was a young artist, I was assisting a Serbian artist who was guest teacher at the San Francisco Art Institute, and he said this wonderful sentence. He said, I can only teach what I don't know. And uh, I tried to live by that kind of mantra, you know, I can only teach what I don't know, which means teaching is not about like delivering a truckload of information every day to the art, to the students but it's kind of uh venturing into new territory that's new to myself with accompanied by young artists and it's more to me this kind of dialogue between different generations of artists and they have things that now I'm older, now I actually can say I've been to the Hirshhorn and I've been here and there and can give them a little bit of information about the art world but they on the other hand their brains are clicking three times as fast and they can give me information about their perception that I don't have. So I always think of teaching as an exchange, never as a one-way street. I was wondering if you could just talk a bit more about how you choose these clips that you want to work with. I mean, in information overload, there's so much footage. How do you possibly come down to that, the most recent watercolor? Yeah, it's uh, it's a real struggle because I, um, and it's changing, I must say. I, I don't know, to me, uh, I have a feeling this might be kind of an end piece. It's. It, it, it already looks like an end piece because the helicopter disappears in the, on the horizon. Uh, Andy Warhol also had uh, envisaged end piece. He did a show at Leo Castelli Gallery in New York where he made these floating silver clouds and he just wanted at the end of the show to send the silver clouds out the window of the gallery and have them float away. And... I don't know, I'm not so, like I said, I'm not so interested in using media as a statement, but I don't even know that I'm so interested in looking at media anymore. And I, I want to, um, uh, the last thing I did was I made a drawing based on a photograph that I took myself out of a train window, which I've never considered before to be interesting at all. But now I actually think in this time where we're bombarded with media from all directions, it's actually nice to look at what you experience with your own head and your own brain. But... These clips, the past, is my only criteria why I want to work with them is because I remember them and I can't forget about them because they stay with me. You guys want to see more of the clips or? Yeah. Yes. yeah. Okay. Can you show us a few more things? Maybe? Really? Okay. <laughs> I thought this is a free event and you got your money's worth, but... Uh, <laughs> Okay, uh, I can only go into the future. I mean, to go into the back seems kind of redundant. So I'll show you something that I'm currently working on. It's not at all finished. It's just a snippet, snippet and a fragment, but I have it on the end of this file. And um, it's for a show that's opening this fall at the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco. I'm half Asian, and the, sh the piece that I'm working on is called Self-Portrait as Someone Else. Uh, 
I mean, <laughs> now you could, at, uh, now at the latest you can tell that I'm a total liar because of course I didn't film this out the train window and this, um, but uh, it's uh, it's kind of part of the, I've, I always think this will be a really quick piece, I'll just do this in two weeks and it's done, but um, I feel the piece is not at all finished, it's just kind of like a first um, dart at something. All of us have these internet siblings, you know, you all have uh, someone with your name that lives in Kazakhstan or in Berlin or something like that. And with me, I feel I got very lucky because my name is very unusual, even in Japan. And then the one person that shares my name is super telegenic and um, um, he, he's a financial analyst and reports on the Tokyo Stock Exchange for Bloomberg News and for MSNBC and these stations. And uh, it, you, I got a lot of money out of him already, in a way. I sent a proposal to the Goethe Institute in, in Japan and said, I want to do a film about a person called Kota Izawa that lives in Japan. Will you fly me to Japan and put me up so I can do research? <laughs> And then, and then they did. So I, w I just spent, I just spent three months in Japan, and uh, I became a member of Facebook uh, just to have a chance to connect to him. And uh, I have zero friends. And, and, and then I connected with the other Kota Izawa who lives in Tokyo, and we had coffee. And of course, he's been following my work for years, and I've been following his work for years. You know, it's like no surprise. Um, but yeah, I, uh, for me, this is all, this is kind of like the bush animation before I put the TV over it, or it's the. Um, it's the last year at Marienbad animation before I put a 3D effect on it. And I found my subject and the material I want to work with now, I want to figure out how it needs to be seen. And that's always super tricky. Okay, do you want me to show something even more absurd and embarrassing and then you'll definitely want to go outside. Okay, I, you know, because I, um, as some of the Hirschhorn employees caught me, I ran frantically back to the hotel just before the talk because I felt I really have to edit it because all throughout the day I realized there's such high quality people working at this museum and I have to show myself from like my best side and I can't show the trash, but... Uh, <laughs> So one of the pieces that I spend a lot of time with, and it never really got anywhere, but then it got to some place. Let's see if I have it here. I really wanted to make a porno film. <laughs> uh, because, you know, I was dealing with media and uh, porno is definitely a kind of media that's around us. 
And but unfortunately, I'm not an expert at porno at all. I mean, like, you know, <laughs> as, as you know, I'm a total liar. Uh, but uh, the one porno film that I always heard about was the celebrity porn of Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee, and I thought maybe that will render some kind of useful uh, footage for a project. And uh, I had actually seen that film at a party. It just played on a TV in the background, and I couldn't watch it. It's, um, I don't know how many of you have actually seen this film. Uh, everybody heard of it, but I feel nobody actually watched it. It's an hour long. Like if you buy the DVD at a porn shop, it's an hour long footage of Pamela Lee and uh, Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee filming each other on their honeymoon vacation, and it's filmed on a boat. And then they, the way they film is they really zoom into each other, so the camera shakes like this the whole time, and I get completely motion sick after five minutes. So I felt I was really doing them a service and uh, <laughs> uh, by making this kind of stable image out of it. And, but it's also, you know, with the art world, it's, very, it's a lot easier to play last year at Marienbad in an art gallery than Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee. Uh, it's, there's still people that, ex I, as you can see from my presentation, I like everything. I like surrealism, but I also like uh, MTV. I don't really distinguish between high and low. But for many people, this is kind of low. But I don't, th uh, then uh, luckily this film had got some late recognition. It was in the international competition of the Oberhausen Kurzfilm Festival, which is a very reputable film festival in Europe. So I think there's something, I think Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee, they made actually this inadvertent experimental film. And I can show you some of my favorite clips from it. It's, let's see. Here it starts to get kind of good. <laughs> so, so this now they're on the boat, and um, Tommy Lee is swimming, skinny dipping. I just said earlier that to make animation is very painstaking and time-consuming, but actually to make uh, uh, animation of sexual intercourse is super simple. It's, you just make six frames and repeat them all over and over. <laughs> Okay, shall we go, I'll go and get a beer outside? <laughs> yeah,